Creative, expertise, technology, patents, and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts-based intellectual property law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. Of course, you can learn more about our firm at www.lalaw.com. I'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, offering private wealth management solutions at www.suntrust.com slash law, and our two new sponsors, Samit and Company, certified public accountants at www.samit, S-A-M-E-T hyphen C-P-A.com, and Sentinel Benefits and Financial Group, a single source provider for all of your employee benefits and financial services needs at www.sentinelgroup.com. On today's show, we will discuss the patent misuse doctrine after the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit's 2010 decision in connection with en banc arguments in Princo versus the International Trade Commission. After a long procedural history in the courts and ITC, the CAFC held that agreements between competitors to license potentially competing patented technology through a patent pool and not licensing those technologies separately does not support a patent misuse defense. Now, many commentators have written that the Princo decision apparently narrows patent misuse conduct and affirms that to establish patent misuse, an accused infringer must prove that the misuse conduct expands the patent's physical or temporal scope with anti-competitive effect. Now, this may not be the last we hear of this case and topic, and uh, in January of this year, Princo uh, filed a petition to the Supreme Court to hear an appeal in this case. So why is this case, and patent misuse for that matter, so important? Joining me today is my guest, Dmitry Milikowski. Dmitry is a senior intellectual property rights counsel at Qualcomm Technology Licensing, uh, a division of Qualcomm Incorporated. Now, Qualcomm, of course... Uh, is is a large San Diego-based company that generates revenues by licensing portions of its intellectual property to manufacturers of wireless products, such as mobile devices, and the infrastructure required to establish and operate wireless networks. Total revenues in 2010 for Qualcomm were almost $11 billion, while revenues from its licensing and royalty operations uh, in 2010, were more than $4 billion. Dimitri has deep experience in the IPR business matters, including licensing, enforcement, and procurement. Prior to Qualcomm, Dimitri has counseled and has been in various roles at various high technology companies and started his career in private practice. Welcome to IP Council, Dimitri. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And um, I, before 
we can sort of continue this conversation. I just want to clarify that the opinions expressed by me are my own, not affiliated or um, endorsed by Qualcomm in any way. And uh, these are my personal opinions. I understand. And I thank you for joining me. Uh, Dimitri, let's jump right into it, because I think some of our listeners might not understand just, just what is patent misuse. Thanks, Peter. Um, I think you define patent misuse very well in your opening statement, which uh, essentially is conduct by a patentee that improperly seeks to expand the scope of a patent, and either in physical or in temporal sense. And it's a it was a court created doctrine. Uh, essentially, came out of the Morton Salt case mm-hmm. in uh, 1942. When when and, one when one speaks of physical or temporal, what what mm-hmm. specific? Uh, can you give me an example of that? Sure. Physical generally has been thought of as tie is patent tying. Really, is sort of the larger, exa- largest uh, set of cases, which means that you're conditioning um, the purchase of an unpatented item on either taking a license or um, on the purchase of a item that's covered by a patent. So that's sort of the classic case, and that's. Okay. What happened in Morton Salt? And temporal, clearly, is just uh, trying to extend the term of some sort of payments uh, beyond the, the, the term and termination of the patent. I understand. Okay. Now, uh, the, um, some of the early doctrine of uh, patent misuse, uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, well, you mentioned Morton Salt, but there's a case prior to that. Um, and, and then there was the, um, the Clayton Act, uh, I think subsequent to that case, the case I'm referring to is the motion picture patents mm-hmm. uh, case, but yes. I think the Clayton Act was after that and, and, uh, which made, I believe, uh, tying, uh, not necessarily only, uh, uh patented items, but tying uh, things together, um, a, uh, a criminal offense. So how would the, um, uh, what's left? I mean, how can we distinguish patent misuse from antitrust? That's actually a very good uh, question, Peter. And it's uh, something that, as you said in your introduction, that the Federal Circuit uh, struggled with in Prinko. The, uh, specifically, um, you know, whether you need antitrust type violation to get to fi- a finding of patent misuse. Um, that being said, they are, as both the Clayton and the Sherman Act um, have specific uh, remedies and specific uh, doctrine for determining whether there's anti-competitive conduct and really, you know, whether there's anti-competitive effect, which is not always required in patent misuse. I see. Okay. Because if you're um, just, for example... In, exp- in, ex- in expanding the temporal scope, you could expand the temporal scope without it having an anti-competitive effect. So that's the broad example. And so, so let's 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 speak a little bit about why is uh, how is misuse raised? Um, um, sure. Uh, okay. Sure. Oh, patent misuse is an affirmative defense to um, uh, charge of patent infringement. And that's also, just to go back to our prior discussion uh, somewhat, that's a distinction between antitrust law. One can raise Clayton or Sherman uh, as a lawsuit, uh, you know, to start a suit against a party, whether their patents evolved or not. 
whereas a patent misuse is an affirmative defense that is brought in defense of uh, patent infringement claims. I see. So someone's accused of infringing a patent, and given the, the facts that, uh, that evolve or, or perhaps that they knew about, they can counter with, hey, those patents are invalid. There's patent misuse here. Uh, that, that's correct, and it's an it's a unenforceable a finding of unenforceability of the patent, assuming mis- misuse is proven and found. Right. I misspoke. I meant unenforceable. Um, okay. So, so why is misuse as a, as a doctrine, as a concept even, important? And, and um, why, why should it be understood by, by folks like yourself that are involved in technology licensing? What, what's, what's All right. it? Yes. Um, I think it's more common in joint venture situations or joint licensing situations like patent pools. And if you're in those types of arrangements, you need to understand how to properly um, create the, both the relationship between number, the parties and how to then license that intellectual property without running afoul of patent misuse and potentially impacting your revenue stream. I see. And and so if there's some pioneering technology or if there are, as as the case in Princo, some standards being formed, is, is that another um, industry standard um, and, and licensing out of that pool that's created? Yeah, it's really to the to the pool part, which you know, misuse would become a bigger issue um, if, in, in standard settings. If there's a number of companies who are not working together at all in a business sense, it would be less of an issue. But if there's a patent pool, clearly it becomes a major. Uh, question. Uh, the FTC has looked into some of these in times past for both antitrust and patent misuse uh, questions. I see. And and then in in terms of hybrid licenses as well, and, and, and licensing involving patents and, and uh, technology or know-how. Yes. I mean, clearly, that, that's a good point. Thank you. That would become a question because you are then licensing intellectual property patents and intellectual property know-how and potentially designs, and there becomes a question, what's be, what specifically is being conditioned uh, or those on what? And those, in those types of situations can potentially cause um, at least that, the question to, be, to arise and to be thought about. Okay. Okay. Well, let's. We, we, we've heard a little bit. We talked a little bit about why uh, misuse is interesting and and important to to have a kind of a high level understanding. But let's let's back up and and talk a little bit about how it all evolved. And um, let, let's um, reflect a bit on the on the history, if you would. Can you take us back to that? Sure. I think we've sort of mentioned sort of the two two of the bigger uh, Supreme Court cases, um, including. Morton Salt and the motion picture case, and those really were, as, uh, as we were saying before, uh, tying. That is, they had a patented product, and then were asking under contract the party to purchase if they wanted to purchase that patented product, and also purchase an unpatented product along with it. And in those instances, the Supreme Court stated that was the specific language they used was misuse of a patent. And those types of cases arose from uh, the, the doctrine of patent misuse arose from the, those types of scenarios, and that went on for uh, some period of time. 
until the late 1980s when Congress acted to codify and some some would say limit the patent misuse uh, doctrine uh, by adding section uh, 35 US uh, USC uh, 271D okay. where they yeah. where they where they actually exempted specific conduct um, from uh, being patent misuse most interesting at least in the context of uh, the the joint venture or or poor, pool patent pool type situations uh, section five which said that um, these types of tying arrangements are not patent misuse unless in view of the circumstances the patent owner has market power in a relevant market so I think that that's where uh, patent misuse ended up. Uh, Due to congressional action, and you could see that you know the federal circuit has um, had a number of patent use misuse uh, questions uh, like Prinko before it, and in all but one of those instances, uh, the Mallinckrodt case, they found uh, a lack of patent misuse, or they've said that the the alleged defendant failed to prove patent misuse. Okay, uh, we need to take a short break. When we return, more with Dmitry Milikovsky. And now a word from our sponsors, SunTrust, Samit & Company, and Sentinel Benefits and Financial Group. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com slash legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. As a business professional or personal investor, you're continually managing change. Samit and Company, certified public accountants, provides audit, tax, accounting, and financial expertise to help you plan for and manage change in ways that yield predictable long-term benefits. At Samit, you can count on a level of integrity that is beyond compare. Our dedicated team consistently puts forth the extra effort to deliver timely, resourceful solutions. At Samit, it's about your success, not ours. Call us now at 617-731-1222. That's 617-731-1222. Or visit us at samet-cpa.com. Hi, Tom. This practice management conference is great. I'm getting lots of good ideas about managing our firm. Me too. The last session was really interesting. Sentinel Benefits and Financial Group. They were talking about saving for retirement with cash balance plans. What are those? It's a special type of defined benefit plan. It looks like a profit-sharing plan. And what's so special about them? The contributions to the partners can be as much as $200,000, and we don't need to increase the contributions to our other employees by much at all. So can any firm use a cash balance plan? The speaker from Sentinel Benefits said it works best for more senior partners. Our partners haven't been able to put much into the 401k plan at all lately. You should give Sentinel Benefits a call at 781-914-1200 
or visit sentinelgroup.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L group.com for more information. That was sentinelgroup.com. S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L group.com or call 781-914-1200 for more information. Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today we are joined by Dmitry Melikovsky from Qualcomm Incorporated, and we are discussing patent misuse and the CAFC Trinco decision. Dimitri, when we left off, we were just finishing on the uh, patent misuse history and uh, really evolution and uh, right on up to the amendment of the uh, Patent Act. But uh, we left off with the Princo case itself yet to be discussed. So let's, let's start there. This is a rather tortuous uh, procedural history. Why don't you start us out with some of the facts of the Princo case? Sure. Thank you, Peter. The the Prinko case arose from um, what what is what are now uh, CDR uh, and CDR uh, W drives. The development of that at the time, uh, both uh, Philips and Sony, amongst others, were developing technologies to be able to create rewritable CD media, and they had uh, both sort of um, one of the key technical issues at the time was how do you determine the position. Uh, of the C- where you're reading when writing on the CD. And both Philips and Sony had developed separate approaches. Philips had patented theirs, their approach under what the, they call the Raymaker patents. And Sony had a Lagadec uh, patent that covered in their alternative approach. During um, development of technology, it was agreed that essentially the uh, Philips uh, Raymaker approach was uh, superior and that was standardized in what was called the Orange Book, which is the required uh, the requirements for passing standardization of these uh, rewritable CD media. And then Sony, Philips, and several other companies uh, formed a patent pool to license the media and the drives. And um, following that, uh, they they had started to license uh, IP under the pool which Philips administered, and that pool included both the Raymaker patents, which was the, were the required techniques, and the Slag, uh, Lagadec patent, which there was some argument whether it was required or not. Uh, Prinko, again, uh, became a licensee in the late 1990s to this patent pool, uh, paid for some period of time, and then they uh, ceased payment, and Philips initiated action in the International Trade Commission against uh, Prinko. I see. So, if you want, as you said earlier, the procedural history of the case was extremely tortured. Well, I know there was a first trial. I, I think they uh, they may have also sued them in district court as well as the ITC. So, so right away you got two cases going. And um, what did? Let's focus on the ITC uh, case. What um, Phillips files an infringement suit in the uh, in the ITC based on. What? Based on just, a Raymaker? Just the Raymaker patent. Okay. Okay. And and uh, so now uh, Prinko is accused of infringement, and they um, they raise misuse as a as a defense. So they, they do. They that's correct. They do raise misuse along with several uh, antitrust uh, counterclaims. 
under the Sherman Act. Now, based on, on what behavior of Phillips that they... Sure. So the specific behavior that there was, uh, there was a number of arguments that were made by, um, by Prinko, one of which was that including the patent, uh, the, the Lagodec patent in the, in the pool was a misuse of the Raymaker patent. And then uh, there was a question of whether there was a tying arrangement as well on the antitrust side. And then there was a question, on, another anti antitrust question about whether there was a horizontal, um, uh, whether the agreement, there was an agreement between Sony and Philips to forgo licensing of the Lagodec patent separately, and right. whether that constituted a uh, both antitrust and patent misuse okay. uh, on the part of uh, the patent pool. Now, now, did the pool license charge more? Or, or the same with or without the uh, uh, Lagodec patent? Sure. Um, the, there was no, this was an entire package license. So there was one fee for the, all of the patents in the pool for the limited purpose of making media that was uh, compatible with the Orange Book. Okay. So there were, no, there were no separate tiered licenses. It wasn't, uh, Sony did not separately license Lagodec, but it was unclear and it was not shown that anybody went to Sony to attempt to get a license just to the Lagodec patent or that that somehow Sony or others were there there was Sony or other companies were able to make a competing technology based upon the Lagodec patent i see so it's really the raymaker patents are really the um, is really where the technology is headed that well, that was what was required for compliance. At least tangentially, that was the discussion. A lot of these issues were not before the courts, okay. so it was no. But um, Prinko did not make a technical argument at some point, saying that you could make a compatible device just using with Lagodec. Nor did they come out and say that they went to Sony and asked for a license. I see. So this is more of a question in to make their make the misuse the misuse uh, argument or their antitrust positions they were taking these additional positions with respect to what can be done uh, just using the Lagodec patent or what you know what um what Philips and Sony had done between them as as part of the patent pool I see. So let's back up a little bit then. The the ITC, the International Trade Commission, uh, initially, what was their finding? So there was a, they the found case, infringement, yeah. and then both the uh, administrative law judge and the and the commission itself found uh, misuse. It went to the federal circuit, which reversed and remanded for more specific findings. The ITC, uh, in response to the remand, then found no misuse. The it was before another panel of the Federal Circuit, which then remanded for additional questions, and then the issue came on uh, banc to the Federal Circuit. I see. So, so what, it's okay. It's extremely tortured. Yes, I, I you know, and I'm trying to you know, keep uh, scorecards here. So the the Federal Circuit on the in the first appeal um, finds no misuse on what ground. It finds uh, no misuse. Be, well, it actually remanded. It, it's reversed. It said there's not enough facts to show that the conduct is, A, anti-competitive, I believe, and that 
there's enough evidence to support the positions that Prinko had uh, put forth. Okay, so then the ITC gets it back, and how do they find no misuse this time? Because, again, based upon the positions taken by by Prinko, there's, they, they haven't shown enough to, that there's a tying arrangement okay. and that the patented issue is simply the Raymaker patents, and it's not... There's no other patents that are part of this uh, case that would make that could be misused. Okay, so so then the ITC finds no misuse the second time they take a look at it, and then it goes mm-hmm. back to the CAFC, uh, which is the present on uh, banc decision we initially uh, introduced. And what were the questions before the CAFC on appeal the second time? Well, there were. Uh, the question was whether the there's a specific question on misuse. And the way the majority framed it in in the case was, you know, when when a patentee offers to license a patent, does does misuse occur by by inducing a third party not to license a separate competitive technology? Okay. And that's essentially how the federal circuit framed the misuse question. And then there was. Uh, a question about whether uh, any antitrust as well, uh, whether there was an anti-competitive, anti-competitive effect and whether there were restraints on, on, on trade. Okay. So, so the, the, um, the patentee offering a license to a patent uh, in, in the present case, um, Phillips, um, mm-hmm. and, and inducing a third-party Sony not to license its separate a competitive technology, the, the, the majority, on banc majority, found no. Uh, That's correct. Okay. And, and what was it about that agreement um, that it didn't increase? Or Well, or it, was, it was rather interesting because essentially the, the argument of the majority was that since the patents at issue are their are Raymaker patents, right. having these third-party patents cannot be misused because... The, the, it, it did not impact the scope, the temporal scope, or the physical scope of the Raymaker patents. The the agreement didn't do that. That's, or, okay. Well, the, that's correct. The agreement did not in, in either increase the term or increase the leverage that Phillips could have gotten from the Raymaker patents, I or see. the pool could have gotten. Okay. And and did the did the court leave us with um um. um Guidance. I know there was a dissent, and we'll get to that. But a, mm-hmm. gui- guidance with regard to the antitrust analysis, how they how they walk through that. She, they did, and it was um, on the on the majority side. I think one one other interesting thing on, on the misuse was that the the majority completely separated out misuse and antitrust, and that that is essentially saying that misuse is a completely separate analysis. And, you know, it's not, there's no requirement of any antitrust, anti-competitive effect or other analysis to be part of misuse, which, which also means that one way to look at it, excuse me, is that, you know, misuse is a, a doctrine that's really focused on the patents and not really, not necessarily, or very little of it is based on the competitive effects of the relationships involved. Okay. So so they went on uh, the majority did in their antitrust analysis to uh to, to to did they speak to research joint ventures or 
They did quite a bit on the antitrust side. I mean, they said patent pools and and um, sort of these research joint ventures actually can have a significant pro-competitive effect or impact, and that uh, is a very interesting and some uh, something that people should keep in mind um, in these types of situations. Where the federal circuit majority saying that if you're going to do joint ventures for R&D specifically, uh, that's a pro-competitive or potentially a pro-competitive benefit. Okay. So uh, the the, uh, research joint venture such as the one between Philips and Sony and others has a um, pro-competitive benefit. And so this is sounding like it was analyzed under the rule of reason. That's correct. Um, The the analysis was a, a... the rule of reason, and that's that's essentially the major the way the majority went to make the analysis because there it was not uh, it was not, didn't fall under the per se categories of uh, antitrust. I see. So, what was some of the evidence of reasonableness by the majority in the in their antitrust analysis of the of the present agreement? Uh, there there were a number of things. One of them, one of the which was a finding by the commission, although. Uh, not not clear under what, how much and how much evidence that the Lagodec patent did not um, work as well according to the Orange Book standards. So there was a technical benefit of uh, okay. what was being provided, and the the other thing it was it was somewhat interesting in the Centic issue was that the Federal Circuit seemed to put the burden on uh, Prinko to show that the other the alternative approach of uh, the, the Lagodec patents from Sony would be commercially viable uh, to the technology of the Raymaker patents. And interestingly, the, obviously, Prinko was not prepared. Uh, they didn't seem to be prepared to make that uh, argument. And I, I, those, it was that sort of technology approach that one a day, if you will, in the in the federal circuit's eyes. Okay. And regarding um, the potential horizontal agreement, or the uh, between Philips and Sony, or the patent pool itself, uh, the position that the federal circuit seemed to, or the majority of the federal circuit, in this opinion, seemed to take, was that there was no uh, showing by Prinko again that the agreement uh, had an actual adverse effect on competition in the market. Mm -hmm. That is, if Philips and Sony did not um, have uh, this pool, there would be, they did not show that uh, that would cause a greater amount of competition uh, in the market. And again, I think that some of that was uh, the reliance on that the technology of uh, the, the Sony Lagodec patents was not or patent was was not as effective and, and could cause compliance issues with the Orange Book standards. I see. Okay. Now I know there was a concurrence where um, uh, they were, um, uh, and I'm forgetting who the concurring judges were, but I, I I think they they discussed that misuse and antitrust are not completely separate analyses. Is that correct? Right. I mean that was essentially they were. Again, there was some concern, but it looks like by the concurrence, and I believe it was 
Judge uh, Prost uh, and Judge Mayer uh, in the concurrence said there could be a, a misuse question in this context whether whether if there was an agreement not to license between so the, the just the Sony patents between Sony and Philips could be considered misuse. Now they essentially then went on to say that uh, based upon the facts here that that question was not relevant. But they said there could be some circumstances where if you had that type of hor- what you, people call horizontal agreement could constitute misuse or at least required an analysis of whether it would, would constitute misuse. Okay. And, and um, the dissent, um, did, they, they, uh, they seem to focus more on the burden. Whose burden is it um, to prove commercial viability? Is that correct? That was definitely a big issue for the dissent. Especially with respect to, um, I mean, taking a step back, the dissent did tie together the misuse and antitrust. If there was anti, it could be anti-competitive effect by that agreement mm-hmm. that would uh, constitute misuse, or that, in the opinion of the dissent. And then they then they took issue, as you said, Peter, with the burden of proof on Prinko, both to show that the agreement um, had a Assuming there was an agreement between Sony and Philips, that would have an anti-competitive effect, and that the technology uh, of Lagadec needs to be commercially viable. And with re- with regard to the Orange Book compliance CDs, so I think that was a big issue because I, I like a, my reading of that opinion is something that Prinko did not present, and and uh, I. It, it becomes a serious question, at least according to dissent, about who has the best ability to do that and where the burden should lie. I see. I see. And and maybe we'll find out. I, I think this uh, uh, certainly dissent and the concurrence and a very uh, long opinion and a, and a long and tortured uh, procedural history, as we've mentioned, uh, will be revisited. I, I uh, suspect um, you and I discussed earlier the, uh, uh, of course, the uh, Prinko has uh, asked the Supreme Court to take a look at this, and uh, mm-hmm. and if not in this particular case, this issue is going to come up again. I think, given the amount of uh, uh, collaborations and more and more uh, collaborations, at least I'm noticing. I'm sure you are as well. No, I think that's that's definitely this has become a larger issue because as technology develops, the cost of entering any market, both from a business and you know R and D standpoint, increases, and it's. Most many companies want to work with others to both increase the number of markets and technologies they can enter, and frankly, to reduce the risk. Sure. And these types of arrangements could could either start as potential, you know, licensing technology platforms, or end up in a situation where that's the most logical way to uh, get the return on the investment. And as you said, as these go forward, there will be more questions about what conduct is re- reasonable uh, and uh, from a from a misuse standpoint, and what conduct is problematic. Okay, okay. So, what are some takeaways we can leave our listeners with? Because um, this is a if, if if people are involved in these types of agreements, uh, companies um, they certainly should know about Prinko. But from your perspective, uh, what, what are some of the takeaways? Sure. Thank you, Peter. Uh, there are a number of things that sort of uh, at least jumped out at me looking at this opinion and the business landscape. One of one of which I think is um, 
is it puts at least in a patent misuse analysis a lot of patent pools in uh, in a better position. Uh, one, the, uh, the the majority clearly saying that has a saying that there's pro-competitive benefits from the antitrust side and from misuse uh, as well. Um, also, just joint technology development and uh, joint ventures have uh, some more. Uh, latitude if if one of the goals is or becomes uh, licensing the industrial property from the deal, uh, there's more likelihood that that would be accepted. And um, both then also, I think, an interesting uh, potential uh, outcome for both joint ventures and even individual companies is, is the potential that broad portfolio licenses where there are a number of competing alternatives for any specific um, technical feature, uh, could look potentially to be a better situation uh, for for having that broad portfolio license uh, to insulate from uh, patent misuse arguments, and that that's that can also be important because when when you're developing technology, it's you're not just focusing on one way to solve a problem. You're generally looking through a number of the ways, and the the optimal way and a second optimal or third optimal way can be developed uh, at the same uh, time. And if you have IP on those types of features, it, it's, it makes more rational business sense to it can make more rational business sense to license the entire portfolio as opposed to one off license, you know, one or two patent licensing, which. Uh, is both administratively and um, practically difficult to implement. Sure, sure, I can see that for both parties. Mm-hmm. So, so okay. So the the large takeaways um, with regard to joint technology development agreements or patent pools or or as you say, technology innovators. I think they should uh, uh, all all those situations should take notice to the of the uh, Prinko decision and um, perhaps even a Supreme Court decision sometime down the road. Well, I, I think we have to we have to leave it there. That about does it for uh, for this edition of IP Council. I want to thank you, Dimitri. Uh, remember, uh, you can find all of our shows at legaltalknetwork.com. You can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. And once again, a, a very special thanks to my guest, Dimitri Milikovsky, for joining me today. Uh, Dimitri, if someone wants more information on this topic, how can they reach you? I can be reached by uh, email at... Uh Dimitri, D-M-I-T-R-Y-M at Qualcomm.com. And Peter, thank you very much for uh, having me and uh, facilitating this discussion. I really appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed it myself. Uh, And of course, you can contact me at LALaw.com or email me directly at plando at LALaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, talking law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.